Welcome to the Barnes and Thornburg Podcast Network. You're listening to Trial Ready, a podcast dedicated to learning about the work of trial lawyers and their insights into the legal issues of today. To learn more, visit us online at btlaw.com. Welcome back to Trial Ready, hosted by me, Mina Sinfeld, and my co-host, Michelle Bradford. This is Barnes and Thornburg's podcast dedicated to learning about the world of trial lawyers and what they do. Last month, the tables were turned on us, Michelle and I were the guests, which, while weird, was oddly fun. Thanks to our colleagues, Adey Adnarelli and David Frazee and Mike Battle for their participation. Thankfully, we're back to how we normally do things this month, and we have our guest, Chuck LaBella, counsel in our San Diego office. Chuck has led a distinguished career as both a prosecutor and a defense attorney, and he has prosecuted and defended many high-profile cases over the last two decades. He has also been inducted as a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers, which only admits 1% of the total lawyer population in a state or a province. Before we get to know more about Chuck, let's get our preliminary questions done with. Welcome, Chuck. It's so good to see you. I um, I've been saving you for for the podcast because I got the chance to meet you and work with you on a on a matter, but I I knew like I've been wanting to talk to you about these things, and I knew I would save those conversations for the podcast because you're just one of those people who's like a legend, but in a good way. And so I'm so excited to finally get to talk to you about these things. But before we begin, we have our preliminary questions. And the first is, who are you and what do you do? I guess I define myself as an attorney, trial attorney, trial lawyer. And what do I do is I'm a uh, of counsel at Barnes and Thornburg here in San Diego. And essentially what my practice has evolved to is I give advice to people who want to stay out of trouble. And then I really try to untangle the spaghetti when they get into trouble so I can have them walk away and have whatever life they can after their brush with the, you know, the criminal justice system. I essentially do criminal law. I, I am not a civil practitioner, although I do some civil cases. That's not my forte. And I defer to people like you who have done much more and others in the, in the firm. Um, my value, I think, is that I'm, I'm good at strategy. I'm good at reading people. And I'm good at reading situations where there's an opportunity to resolve a matter uh, as opposed to you know, going to war and, 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 and burning the place down. But I, I do go to war and I do go to trial and I've had some success. So that a nutshell. And you've had to burn the places down a few times. I've I, heard. I have. I have. Um, sometimes I got burned. But, you know, it's part of being a trial lawyer. If you don't if you don't try tough cases, you're not a trial lawyer. Um, and I've tried a bunch of tough cases. Uh, I've had, you know, a, a pretty good success. And I, I, I got to tell you, I love I love what I do. I love the criminal justice system. Um, I'm not in love with the civil side of it. I will tell you, quite frankly, um, I think the criminal lawyers uh, and the prosecutors, because I was on both sides of the fence, uh, tend to be much more user friendly than on the civil side. The civil side, it, it, it seems like, you know, all I do want to do is punch you in the nose to impress their client. And I, I never thought that was a successful uh, approach. But be as it, be that as it may, I, I tend towards the criminal law because I like it a lot more. 
No, and I agree. I think we've said on this podcast, uh, we've had guests say many times that civil law is the most uncivil aspect of the practice of law because people can be so uncivil. But, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about the prestigious positions you've held, you know, in the government. I want to know of all the positions you've held, all the job titles you've had, what was your favorite and why? To be a line AUSA in the Southern District of New York was... I can't tell you, I look back and I talk to my children, my three children about it. I talk to my wife about it. And that is the most, um, the most significant part of my career. The day I put up my hand and I swore in front of John Martin, who was the U.S. attorney, and I'll never forget the day uh, in the Southern District of New York. And I became an AUSA, a line AUSA in the Southern District of New York. And I was promptly sent to the, the baby unit which is the general crimes unit where you learn your trade. And uh, there was a woman, Barbara Sue Jones, who was my former, my first supervisor in the office. Barbara Sue Jones went on to be a U.S. district judge. She was the head of uh, organized crime at Southern District. But at that time, she was the head of the general crimes unit. And I'll never forget the speech she gave me about doing the right thing. And for whatever reason, I just just soaked that in and I have taken that with me throughout my career. And I've always admired her for looking me in the eye and saying, look, if if you have a case and you're on the eve of trial and you realize there's something wrong with your case, and not that the defendant is innocent, but you cannot prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, you have a moral obligation and a professional obligation as an AUSA in the Southern District of New York to stop that prosecution. And those lessons stay with you forever. I can still hear her words now. And I'm 70 years old now, and she's long retired from the bench, um, but she, uh, her words resonate with me still. I, I love that because I think as a young AUSA, it gives you a sense of guidance as to how you go about your job because it can be overwhelming, the amount of responsibility yeah. you have. But final preliminary question, what's your number What's my number? What's your number, trial attorney? What do you think I'm asking about? Oh, the number of trials I've had? Boy, you know, I never kept track. Um, I I really didn't. Um, the only time I've ever had to try to chronologize my, my trials was when I was either going for the U.S. attorney's spot or I had a uh, an up in my um, security clearance of DOJ. Uh, or applied for a judgeship, none of which I got, but um, I will tell you. But, you know, I probably have 30 or 40 cases, but a lot of them were long cases. A lot of them were month long, two month long. Um, As a criminal defense lawyer, I've had two cases that lasted nine months and 11 months, respectively, approximately. Um, And so uh, the numbers aren't in the hundreds, but um, they're significant in that they were long, long trials, which can be debilitating, but but are really rewarding as well. Agreed. I think those any trial that goes over three months, I count as double. It's going to be counted as two trials. Yeah, any trial over a, a week is <laughs> is a significant is a significant trial. Well, yeah. I'm going to turn you back over to Mina. Okay. All right. So now I've got some more questions about your incredibly impressive resume here, Chuck. So you were a deputy chief in the DOJ fraud section. 
uh, where you were handpicked by Janet Reno to serve as the supervising attorney of the DOJ Campaign Finance Task Force. Man, that's a mouthful. Um, you were the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of California. And before all of that, I think you spent 11 years as an AUSA in the Southern District of New York. So right. where you served as the chief of the public corruption unit too, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, and you were in the narcotics unit, unit, the organized crime unit, the general crime crimes unit in the Southern District. So what was it about government service that kept you going for so long? That's, I mean, that's a lot of units. It, it is a lot of years. And uh, I think I hearken back to sort of the Jesuit philosophy of giving back. I realized early on, I wasn't in the government because it was a safe place for me in my career that I could, you know, hide in plain sight. Um, but rather it was a, it was a place where I could, I could do some good and I could bring common sense to the criminal justice system. And I tried to do that. I, I interacted well with most lawyers. I, I really only had one bad experience. And I have, I have walked away from most of my criminal trials with, with a positive relationship with counsel on the other side, whether they're a prosecutor or a defense lawyer. And, and that, I think, is, is one of the keys to how I was able to navigate the criminal justice system and to stay as a prosecutor for so long without becoming yeah, useless or redundant. And I, I don't know how else to say that, but I always thought I was contributing and um, it, the best job I ever had was it was being a public servant. I really, I really like that, and I still like it. And I still do pro bono cases because I think it's the right thing to do. So, for um, our listeners, especially some of the younger attorneys who might find themselves where they have uh, someone across the aisle who is trying to get their goat, what what kind of advice would you have for them? You just have to steel yourself against it, and you you have to make sure you're not taking it personally. Um, and that's you know concentrate on your case, not on the personality on the other side, because very often they try to draw you into this personality conflict. And it, it depletes what you're doing as a lawyer because it takes energy. And when energy is deflected to personal animus, uh, you lose something. It's wasted energy. Focus on your case. Focus on what you do and, and, and make what you do better rather than engage in personal animus with, with the other side. That's great. So um, a couple more questions here. Do you feel it's more challenging um, being a defense attorney or um, being a prosecutor? Oh, God, yes. It's so much more challenging as a defense lawyer. I don't have grand jury subpoenas. I, <laughs> I often joke when I, when I left the government, I should have taken 10 with me and used them judiciously. Uh, but, I, you know, you don't have an investigative agency. You have a client who's paying the bill. So you're, you're bound by a budget. You don't have the FBI or DEA or whatever agency at your beck and call. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's much more difficult being a defense lawyer because the government has most of the cards. And I'm not saying it's unfair. It's just that's the way it is. The rules in federal court are written, and I do mostly federal stuff, are written really pro-government. Uh, you know, they, you know, and when I was a government lawyer, I took full advantage of that. You know, so I, I'm. I'm, I'm arguing both sides of my mouth. But yeah, I think it's much more difficult as a defense lawyer because also you're dealing with the human element. 
you know, as a government lawyer, you often don't think about, but you should, but you don't think about the implications for the family and the children and what this is going to do to his or her lifestyle if this person is convicted of crime A as opposed to crime B. So there are all those considerations and you really feel empathize with your clients. And I've been blessed with really good clients, uh, some of whom are close friends today that I've represented in criminal cases. And um, you see firsthand what happens as a result of a conviction. And that's difficult very often. Well, thank you for that, Chuck. I'm going to hand you back to Michelle now for some additional questions. Yes, Chuck. Well, you know, we are all about trial war stories here. And so I want you to talk to us about how you knew you wanted to be a trial attorney. Was it something that you dreamed of in law school? Was it something that you just kind of fell into? Talk us through how you became who you are. Yeah, I didn't fall into it in any way, shape or form. It was something I don't want to say I was born to it, but my dad, who died when I was 10, was a lawyer. He was um, he and his brother were the first in the Italian family to go to college. And and he became a lawyer and his brother became a CPA. So, you know, there was that. Uh, And I remember as a young child watching Perry Mason with him. He was he was not a trial lawyer. He was a corporate lawyer. And I remember vividly watching that and watching the courtroom drama, although the prosecutor always lost in that case, in those cases. Um, I remember being fascinated by the question answer and the investigation. I think the investigation is what captured me. Like Perry Mason used to do this incredible investigation with Paul Drake. And I, I always marveled at, oh my God, how did they how did they figure out that that woman they should ask this question to? And then it all unfolded, you know, on the, on the witness stand. Now it doesn't happen like that very often in real life, but the investigative part of it fascinated me. And so I knew very young, I wanted to do that. Unfortunately, I I wasn't a great student and I, I, you know, I, I was into sports much more than intellectual pursuits. And so it took me a while to get on the, the track that, hey, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can get into law school. I took two years off after college in which very valuable experience. I, I worked as a um, uh, freelance photographer. I worked in construction and I worked as a teamster in, um, uh, in a warehouse. And those three things gave me an incredible ability, and I know I'm off track now, but incredible ability to pick juries because I worked with real people, you know, people who struggled every day in their life, um, people who I, I came from a, a middle class uh, uh, neighborhood. So I didn't see a lot of different people. I saw a lot of the same people. I started to interact in a real way, in a work way in a personal way with people who had very different experiences. And that to me became invaluable. And then I was lucky enough to get into law school. I ended up the first day of law school, uh, you know, people came out of property was my first class. People came out bewildered. They said, oh my God, this is ridiculous. And I said, no, it's pretty clear. So I got it. I mean, I got it from the first day and I, I ended up, <laughs> achieving intellectual excellence, which I never did before that. I ended up on law review. I ended up number 12 in my class and I ended up 
after three years in a good place. And uh, I was just lucky, just lucky. So when you first tried your very first case, was that confidence there, the confidence we see now that, that we know is inherent in who Chuck LaBella is, what was that like for you, that very first trial? Well, my first trial, I recall I was uh, going down the elevator in Southern District, New York on the third floor, you used to have a, a breezeway to the courthouse. So I was on the eighth floor, seventh floor at that time. I was going down in my trial court with my, my senior lawyer who was babysitting me. And um, she, you know, she was taking care of me and helped me through my questions and getting through the direct examination and discovery and all that stuff. Um, the U.S. attorney gets on the elevator with a cup of coffee and he didn't have a lid on it. So he somehow... He realizes this is my first trial, my first day I'm going in front of Judge Palmieri, okay? He turns around and says, good luck, and there's coffee all over my white shirt. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't like it was all over my white shirt, but it was enough to say, oh, my God, people are going to see this. So um, my second seat looks at me and she says, you just have to deal with it. And, and I said, okay. So I went to the courthouse and I, we, we did our preliminary um, on the motions and 404B and all the normal stuff we do. And I had this coffee stain on my, my shirt and judge never said anything. Judge Palmieri was an incredible gentleman, very conservative and pro-government. So that's why I won my first case. But he, he, he didn't say anything. And in front of the jury, I said, you know, I had a little accent in coming here and I apologize. But then I got into my case and got over it and I realized these are just people and these are my people because I worked with them before I went to law school. I, I know who they are. You know, they're mailmen, they're teamsters, they're, you know, teachers. And so I, I, I was able to communicate and, and that was an epiphany for me to realize they're not going to they're not going to laugh at you. They're just, they're listening to you. They want to listen to you and you better give them something to listen to and it better be right. So that's, I mean, I, I and it grew from there. Um, and in my last trial as a, as a prosecutor, when I was with the fraud section was in, um, it's after I had left and I came back to the department of justice. Uh, I remember my daughter and my wife were in the, uh, audience for the, the, the summation, and it was quite theatrical. I mean, it was it was actually I mean, not theatrical in a bad sense, but it was I was just talking and it was full of emotion. And, uh, you know, I, I use that as a, you know, the bookmark of my my career from the first coffee stain to the last where I, I took a book and banged it on the desk in the court uh, to get the you know, not to get the jury's attention, but to to make a point after the defense. And this is my rebuttal summation after the defense had made a point about this book and went on and on and on and on and on about it. I slammed the book down. And I said, this has nothing to do with this case. What has to do with this case is blah, 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 blah. So anyway, that's a long answer to your very short question. I'm sorry. No, that's perfect, actually. I think one of the first things I learned as an AUSA was to have multiple suits and <laughs> outfits in my closet because you just, we didn't have the connection uh, in the building to the courthouse. You had to walk two blocks. And sometimes you'd walk in the rain, you're walking in snow and there were many, many um, outfit <laughs> mishaps on the way to court. So I always had it in my in my uh, my my trial bag. I'd have an extra top. I'd have an extra pair of pants just in case. Well, Chuck, 
one final question because this is something I've wanted to know. You know, the website talked about the Leon Benzer prosecution that you handled. It was the Las Vegas Homeowners Association, um, and it resulted in over 40 convictions after a multi-year investigation. Um, It was actually one of the largest fraud cases in the history of Nevada at the time, if not the largest. Those types of prosecutions take forever. I, I know. How do you t- how do you take something that grand, that large, and sort of whittle down to the really essential components that you're going to need to present to your jury? Well, it's a, that's a great question, and it's it's a combination of things. It is first of all, I had great agents on that case, FBI and local PD, uh, Las Vegas uh, Police Department detective. They were essential. Um, the case came to me in a very funny way. Um, I was just made deputy chief of the fraud section in DOJ, and the head of the fraud section um, asked me to take a look at, they were having a little problem in Las Vegas with the prosecution of this case. The AUSAs weren't getting a lot, they weren't AUSAs, they were, they were DOJ, because the U.S. Attorney's Office had been recused, and it was a, a, a you know, a public recusal, and it wasn't for a good reason. Um, so DOJ came in and we flew in, uh, and then the agents, you know, reacted like they do when the AUSAs in the office reacted like they normally do, like, you know, stop. So he said, we're having problems here. Can you go see as a supervisor, can you fly in from San Diego and see if you can fix this mess? And so I went to a meeting, the, the, the DOJ lawyers were at the throats of the agents. The agents were at the throats of the DOJ lawyers. Nobody was getting along. And so I just basically scratched it all and said, okay, I'm going to, and I told the chief, I said, let me do this case because this is a mess. And so then I took over the case. I ended up bringing the the two people who were on the case got off because they really didn't like the case. I brought two younger lawyers in and they just hit the ground running. And I I established credibility with with the agents. And once I did that, it was easy. And I just kept reining them in, saying, no, we don't want to do this. We want to do this, but we want to do this right. And so I I took a very complicated case, took a lot of, cut a lot of the fat off, and then then tried that case. And we ended up getting, I I don't know, 38-something pleas, and we went to trial with four uh, defendants, one of them being a lawyer, uh, very difficult. case, but we ended up convicting everybody. And uh, and it was good. It was a good case for, for Las Vegas. It was a good case, ultimately, at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, I, I got along very well with them. And, you know, the U.S. Attorney was very good and helpful. And so I was able to, to do that. But it was a great case. Great case. No, that's awesome. Great agents. Yeah, no, thank you. I've, I've been wanting to ask you about that case. I just have such respect for you know, prosecutors who have these high profile big cases and are able to yeah. be successful in them. But with that, I am going to be turning you back to Mina for our cross-examination. Oh, okay. Chuck, this is our favorite part of our podcast because yay, lawyers who never usually get to take the stand now get to be cross-examined, but don't worry, it'll be painless mostly. And Michelle gets to be your counsel. So you don't get to object. Okay. Because these are the rules, right? You just have to answer like a good witness on cross-exam. And if Michelle thinks the questions are not fair, she'll object for you. Okay? Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. You are a graduate from Fordham Law School, correct? 
Correct. And in fact, your daughter is a current law student at Fordham Law School as well, correct? Yes. All right. And you play the drums in a band, correct? I do. And in fact, you use the same drum set that you had as a child. I do. And the name of your band is Limited Jurisdiction, isn't it? It is. And at one point in your government career, you were supposed to serve a one-year detail as the first assistant U.S. attorney in San Diego, correct? Yes. And in fact, you ended up staying for five years. Is that correct? I did. And then after that, you became the U.S. attorney in San Diego. Is that correct? That's also true. Okay. And you've been known to ride a Vespa. Is that correct? I do, still. And you fluently speak Italian. I do. I can't say I'm fluent, but I, I, I can I can order a meal. <laughs> and one of your prized possessions is a photograph that appears to be signed by Janet Reno. Is that correct? It is. And you have a t-shirt that reads, I survived the 60s twice. Is that correct? I do. I can't believe you know that. <laughs> and you survived. Good agents. And you survived your cross-examination. Good job. Yeah. All done. Chuck, final thoughts. What advice would you give to an aspiring trial attorney who is maybe like you, not doing great in high school or not sure if they're going to college? What would you say to that person? Stick with it and try like hell to get into public service, whether it's a district attorney's office or a U.S. attorney's office or the State Department or some agency that is involved in public service because that as the the cornerstone or the foundation for your career is the best possible foundation you can have because if you do it right, you learn that doing the right thing is what you're supposed to do. Whether you can get away with doing other stuff or not, doing the right thing is what you're supposed to do and you serve the public. And, and that is probably the most rewarding aspect of your career and it gives you an, a terrific base to serve individuals if you later become a defense lawyer because you know that they are too part of the public and, and you serve them as well. So I would say stick with it. Don't give up because I, I could have easily given up, um, but I got into law school. I scrambled to get into law school. I wasn't, I'm certain I wasn't Fordham's first pick, um, but, but, you know, I ended up doing okay. And uh, and so even though you may have a rough start, stick with it. Well, Chuck, thank you so much. And thank you for sticking with us these uh, past 30 minutes. This has been great. Thanks to all our listeners. We'll see you or hear, you'll hear from us again next month. Bye.